0: Amen. Do you ever wonder what God thinks of you? Somehow, I just don't think God is nearly as fascinated with us as we are. Mostly, mostly, or maybe because He can tell wisdom from foolishness, and we have trouble with that from time to time. Um, well, that's not to say that He's not dramatically involved in your life from one moment to the next. He really is. And that, one of the things that really makes me sad is that people think God is like, has nothing to do with their lives. He doesn't even know about them. Or It's very common for people, even believers to think that, you know, God doesn't really, isn't dramatically involved. And he, you know, God's there every step of the way. He holds your breath in his hand. And every moment you're alive, every day that you're alive, there's a specific purpose for it. And he wants, uh, he's working to that end. Um, Unlike us, God is not moved by lies and deceptions of the human heart. He's not impressed with marketing or uh, spin doctors. He he knows who we really are. I wish uh, I could say the same about ourselves. People are very complicated. If you have doubts about that, read the tax code. (laughs) Or maybe try to figure out why lawyers speak a different language than everybody else does or just watch television. No, don't do that. From a distance, we're all pretty straightforward, but the closer you get, the stranger we become until pretty soon you're trying to figure out who's crazy, you or the other guy. And of course, if one person is confusing all by himself, try sorting out a whole gang of them like a family or Congress. Every single person is utterly unique, one-of-a-kind, totally different from every other person. I mean, it is so amazing that God is able to reveal His truth to the hearts of every single crazy individual, regardless of culture, language, intelligence, or diet. You know, He can He can communicate with people. Have you ever met people that you couldn't communicate with? I mean, and like if they, they speak the same language as you, supposedly, and and you... And it just it seems like there's no connection. It's really wild. It's wild when you watch two other people do that, and you can understand both of them. And you know they're not hearing each other at all. It's pretty crazy. Sometimes I think that if a person is too intelligent, the gospel seems to present more of a problem to them. Isn't that kind of strange? 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. You know, the smarter a person is, the more suspicious, at least I am, I I have a tendency to be suspicious of really intelligent people. You kind of expect them to be untruthful because they're real articulate and they can, you know, and you think smart people know how to lie. And they may not be, they may be perfectly honest. Sure. Smart people lie. What do they, Pastor Xavier says, uh, Figures don't lie, but liars sure can figure. We kind of expect smart people to lie. What makes the whole thing even more complicated is when these smart people believe their own lies. This is the situation that Jesus finds himself confronted with in John chapter 5, starting at verse 24. Uh, He's dealing with people who have persuaded themselves that their self-serving religious system is actually serving God. And they really believe this. At least some of them do anyway. No matter what some backwoods carpenter says. I mean, are you going to believe some uneducated miracle preacher? Or the high priests and the council? The best minds that money can buy? The disciples of Moses? Or at least so they say. Smart people are often deceived. If not by themselves, because of their confidence in their own ability because they have great confidence in their ability to deal with the situation. You know, this is, we look at, and I know you all probably know very intelligent people who, for instance, just as an example, believe in the theory of evolution. Okay. And you see, these people are many of them. And I, I know people like this are so intelligent. They've spent their whole life being able to figure everything out. They are unaccustomed to being able to look at an issue and say, this doesn't make sense to me without, going through the steps and putting it together and understanding how anything works. And so when they are confronted with issues that are way above their pay scale, their, their response is, this cannot be true. This is not logical. This is not reasonable. And so they're unable to come to grips with it under those, those circumstances. Their confidence is in their own ability. God comes to earth as a man and he tells the truth And people get confused. They were so unaccustomed to hearing the truth, they didn't even quite know what to do with it. We are going to talk about, or at least one of the things we want to remember when reading the Gospels, is whose side Jesus is on. And the answer is that he is on the side of the sinners, he is on the side of the failures. He is on the side of the people who can't do it, who can't get it done, and who have banged their head up against a wall long enough. It may seem from time to time that Jesus is condemning people for their conduct and for their attitude. But the reality is that he is doing everything that he can do to bring people's attention a couple of really important facts that they are separated from God because of sin that God has provided a way of salvation and his words of truth and the purpose of his life are that way those are the things he's trying to communicate to people everything about his ministry in one way or another points people to the truth of the gospel even the religious leaders themselves and it really does seem throughout the Gospels that Jesus is very adversarial with these religious leaders. But in reality, you know, Christ is trying to get their attention, to help them to get a different perspective, to take a more objective look at what they're doing and who they are and the system that they're working inside of. And sometimes I think he's trying to get us to do the same thing. God help us. The dictionary defines the word testimony as a public declaration regarding experience. Uh, Testimony can be true or false. Today we're going to examine the relevant testimony regarding Jesus from seven sources here in chapter 5. Testimony of life and death, verses 24 through 29. Testimony of the Father, verses 30 through 32. Testimony of the Baptist, in verse 33 through 35. Testimony of the works, verses 36 and 37. Testimony of scripture, 39 and 40. Testimony of men, 41 through 44. And finally, the testimony of Christ in verses 45 through verse 47 at the end of the chapter. From these accounts, we want to resolve a couple of questions. Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to us? How should we come to understand that? What should we do about it? A little bit of the background, the first part of chapter 5, And if if you don't remember from last week. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the second time, recorded in his ministry. He goes to the pool of uh, Bethsaida near the sheep, Sheep Gate. And he speaks to one man amongst a multitude of infirm, sick, and crippled people. He goes to one man. He's been there for apparently about 38 years. And Jesus heals this one man, sends him home on Saturday. On the Sabbath, tells him, take up your bed, go home. Guy's walking off carrying his bed. The pool of Bethesda in the city of Jerusalem is seriously about a stone's throw. I think I could throw a stone to the Temple Mount from the pool of Bethesda. You could get it all the way over there. It wouldn't be too hard. It's just off the corner of the Antonia Fortress, right there. And um, so that place is going to be covered with recognized religious people. And uh, when this guy starts walking off with his, his little bed that he spent 38 years on under his arm on a Saturday, he gathered a lot of attention really quickly. No doubt created a firestorm with the religious leaders. They told him, you know, who, who told you to take your bed? He explained the situation of his healing. And this is, uh, of course, one of the things that created the problem. Jesus telling them to pick it up on a Saturday and do that followed directly by the fact that Jesus refers to God as exclusively as his father, which we'll get into that a little bit more in John five eighteen, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. So Jesus from, from verse 19, we're starting at 24, but from verse 19, all the way through 47 is nothing but the words of Jesus in this chapter. It's all the dialogue of Jesus speaking to these people straight through. He's trying to rattle the cage of these men to help them understand that their problem there is a problem with them as the religious leaders, and that he is the antidote. Testimony of life and death, verses twenty four through twenty nine. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus starts off both with the phrase, what you have in the New King James is most assuredly. If you look it up in the original language, it is "Amen, Amen." If you have, uh, let's New American Standard, it's going to say, or New International, it's going to say, "Truly, truly." And the idea "Amen, Amen" doesn't communicate. We think of that—that's the end of your prayer. "Amen." Was he praying? What happened? Um, what he is saying is the word "Amen." Anybody know what the word "Amen" means? It so. What? So be it. it is so. So be it. Okay. Sort of. You know, so be it's kind of archaic, it's like King James-ish, but yeah, it is so. Very good. Um, so he's saying, this is true, this is true. And here's the idea, and this is just unfortunately kind of a, a very sad thing to me. Seems to be a sad thing. God, of whom the scripture witnesses that it is impossible for him to lie. The other day in, in Bible study, I said that, you know, that there are a great many things that God does good. And I waited for somebody to kind of call me on that. You know, I said, what do you mean? God does everything good. No, He doesn't. There's some things God can't even do at all. Like lie. He can't lie. He's no good at it. He's no talent for lying. Can't, can't utter a lie. Impossible. He comes to earth as a human being and He has to walk around saying, truly, truly, honest engine. No, really, this is... And because, Why? because he's dealing with a whole world of people who are so twisted and so entrenched in lying that they wouldn't recognize the real deal if it, if it bit them. And I just think how sad for him, how sad for him to have to go around trying to reassure people that he's telling the truth, but he does because he was willing to speak any language he needed to in order to get our attention. In verse 24, he says, I say to he who hears my word, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come unto judgment but pass from life to death. Gospel presentation. Hears his word, believes in him who sent him, qualified. Now, I mean, it's noticeably absent a whole lot of theology there. There's nothing about the cross, nothing about the resurrection, nothing about being washed in the blood. But you can argue with Jesus about that. He says, if you hear his word and you believe on him who sent him, this is essentially folks, the qualification of old Testament salvation. Somebody who's looking, believes in God, the father to provide a way for their sins to be forgiven And because they believe in God the Father's ability and they hear the word of God, they're going to be regenerated by the power of God because of their faith in the Father to be able to accomplish this issue. In uh, 25, he begins talking about the the testimony of life and death. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. This hour now is uh, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. So whatever he's talking about, it was happening that day as he was standing by the pool of Bethsaida. And uh, basically, it goes back to the biblical definition of death. What is the biblical definition of death? The biblical definition of death is separation from God. You're separated from God. It doesn't matter how live your body is. You are dead. Anything that is separated from God, because life exists in God Only. And so if your life is divorced from God, you are spiritually dead. And so when Jesus says here, the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear. So now the emphasis is on here. What does he mean when he says here? He means believe. He means when you hear, you get it. You get it. Absolutely. Through and through heart and soul. You get it. You understand. Like, like, When you heard the word of God and God changed your life, when you read the scripture and God spoke to you himself and you sat back and you said, Oh my gosh, what happened to me? You knew you didn't wonder you. I mean, you may have had some questions, but you didn't wonder. You knew that God had done something miraculous at that moment of time. You heard, and you may not have had all the theology straightened out in your head, If you're like me, you know the Jehovah's Witnesses could have visited your house the next day, and you're I'm so glad to meet you guys. Wow, you'll never guess what God did. And you just explain it, and they're like, huh? Well, uh, huh. And I didn't know enough to be confused. God is good. It was wonderful. Those who hear will live. When he says those who are dead, in verse 25, very closely akin as Jesus is talking to, uh, in another part of the Gospels, where a man requests of Jesus, let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You know, it's the darndest thing. Dead people don't bury anybody. (laughs) Do they? Unless they're not dead. Unless they're spiritually, unless they're just separated from God. And that was the intent. As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. This is a huge verse, guys. Because what he's saying is, God has endued me with power on high to bring about regenerate spiritual life in the lives of people who hear the message that I speak. Do you know God's done that for you? Do you know that God has endued you with power from on high to bring about a spiritual life in the lives of people that you speak the gospel to by His Holy Spirit? The only way that it works in verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Association. Guilty by association. The Father and the Son. Father has endued him with power. The Son of Man is a messianic title. It is also the means by which, because he is a human man, he, the means by which he is able to lay hand on the Father and on the human race, and he is able to bridge the gap between the two because he is the son of man authority to execute judgment. He will be the kinsman Goyel between the two, the kinsman redeemer between the two. And he's the only one that could ever do this thing. He's the only one, the son of man in first John chapter five, verse 11. It says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He is the lightning rod of human regeneration. He is the only way it works. Not not salvation, being human. He's the only way that being human actually works. I know I tried it. It didn't work. In Christ, it works. The person of Christ being the central issue of Christianity. Without Christ, there is no such thing as Christianity. Unique in every religious philosophy of this planet. You can take any religious philosophy in the world, and you've all heard this around John fourteen 6, I'm sure, and remove its prominent leader. You can take Siddhartha Gautama out of Buddhism. You can take Muhammad out of Islam. You can take any other major leader, Lao Tzu out of Taoism. And you'll still have the same philosophy. You can't take Christ out of Christianity. It doesn't exist. It cannot happen. He is the engine of Christianity. He is Christianity in persona. In verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, very different than those who are dead, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. First, the dead, We'll hear his voice now. Those who are in the graves. And there's a huge differentiation between the two. There's and a huge gap of time, by the way, like more than a thousand years between those who are in the graves uh, are going to hear the voice of Christ at the rapture of the church. Those who hear his voice that are dead were hearing on this very day, 2000 years prior In this section in verse 28, he's speaking about literal corpses. Those that don't hear at all, but they will respond. They will respond to the trumpet. They will respond to his call. They will actually come out of the ground and their physical bodies will come out of the ground and be changed in a moment of time. And he's talking in this passage, 28 and 29, about the first and the second resurrection. First resurrection... The bodies that come out of the ground are part of the first resurrection. There are people who are going to come out of the ground before the rapture of the church. We will be raptured and brought into the presence of God. The second resurrection, of course, is a reference to those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. They will appear before God at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, and they will be held responsible in God's presence for their actions at that time. Isaiah twenty six nineteen says, The dead men shall live together with my dead body, shall arise, awake, and sing. This is the first resurrection. The second resurrection, Revelation twenty twelve. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Key phrase. Don't ever want to find yourself in a situation where you are going to be judged according to your works. Even if you're the second best person that's ever lived, you're not going to make it. You want to be judged according to the grace of God. You want to set your hope fully upon that grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a separation of the body and spirit with people. 2 Corinthians five eight says, We are confident, Paul speaking of himself, I say, and well Willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Um, we have the account of uh, Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus shares in Luke sixteen twenty two, where he says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Okay, so the rich man was buried and he was being in torment in Hades, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. Now, wait a minute. thought he was buried. Yeah, he was. But his spirit was not buried. It was not limited to the location or the locale of his physical body. And until the resurrection, he was in Sheol. As Jesus records it as Hades. But he's in torment. He's under the judgment of God. Prior to the time of the white throne judgment. Which is going to be taking place. The testimony of life and death. Life and salvation. Death and judgment. And God is faithful. In verses 30 through 32, we have the testimony of the father. I can't of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. I know that the witness, which he witnesses of me is true. Submission to the Father in everything that Jesus did. Everything that Jesus does. He said of himself, I do always those things that please the Father. How was Jesus able to go to the pool of Bethesda, reach out to this guy who had been 38 years in a terrible condition, raise him up, send him on his way? How was Jesus able to do this? And don't you wish that the religious leaders of the Jews had asked themselves this question? How could he do it? Men don't heal people. They're not able to. Doctors don't heal people. And don't tell me you know. Doctors are a blessing. I'm so thankful for doctors. They do wonderful works. They help your body to heal itself. They use medications. They use therapies. They use all that education. And they are a blessing. We thank the Lord for them. Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, was a doctor. And he did... God used him, I'm sure, in powerful ways. But men don't heal people. Only God can heal people. Only God can do miracles. And Jesus was a man. How did Jesus heal people? The Holy Spirit of God worked through him. The same way that the Holy Spirit of God can work through you. Just as you speak the truth of God to people, their lives can be Changed forever. You also can pray to people for people, pray to people, pray for people that God would heal them. And if it is the will of God, his spirit will touch them and heal their physical bodies. People can be raised from the dead by the prayers of the saints. Simon Peter was a man like we are. And he went to Joppa. He prayed for Dorcas or Tabitha. Take your pick. And she rose up and I imagine she was a little angry. I would have been <laughs> if I'd been in the presence of the Lord and somebody brought me back from the dead and be like, What are you doing? What is the matter with you? But she was obviously a very good natured lady because everybody was rejoicing and she said, Oh, well, you know, whatever. Let's have a party, you know? We have no account that she was disturbed, but I think if so, keep that in mind. If I die suddenly, leave me alone. <laughs> Let me be no CPR. Tell my wife too. Anyway. In verse 27, it says, it has been given him authority, speaking of himself, to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. People misunderstand the whole idea of authority and submission. Honestly, people have a lot of trouble with authority and submission. Some people just have trouble with authority. Some people, it seems that their idea of the proper role of submission is to convince authority of its misdeeds. You know, I'm a submissive. Let me tell you where you're wrong. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us of Christ that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus is God. He doesn't learn. So if the scripture goes out of its way to tell us that he learned obedience by the things that, He suffered. The idea here, there's an example that we need to follow. Folks, there are things that we need to learn. Jesus says, I I do not seek my own will. He's seeking the will of God, just like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Look for God's direction and wisdom. You ever found yourself in a situation where you're praying to God and you know you're praying in the direction that he doesn't want you to go, you know, it's tough. And there's a conviction. You start, you get that like rock in your stomach and you're, but you're dedicated and you know, it's over the passage of time, we will get turned around and find the way that he wants us to go in. But some people don't. Some people don't. Some people are unwilling to go the way the Lord wants them to go. And we need to be sensitive to his direction. He says in 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now he's really making reference to the law of Moses here. To Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, uh, the scripture says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And this principle goes all the way through the Mosaic law. Why? Because people are not really all that reliable. God help us. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, any fact shall be established. And so when Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself as a man, my witness is not admissible as fact, according to the law. The other witness on his behalf, of course, is the father. And we know that his witness is true as revealed in the works that he does. What did Jesus do at the pool? Told a guy, get up, take up his bed and go home. God healed him. It was the work of God. It was his hand. It was the evidence of his presence. It was the witness of his purpose at work. In verses 33 through 35, the testimony of the Baptist. Jesus makes a passing reference to John the Baptist here. You've sent to John and he is born witness of the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. You were willing for a time to rejoice in his life. We'll elaborate a little bit later on in the passage here because this, I do not receive testimony from man, is a very important issue that Jesus is going to bring up again and directly dealing with the religious leaders to give them perspective and some counterpoint on where they stand. Um, He says... The things that he says here are ordered this way for a purpose. When he says, but the things that I say that you may be saved. Well, okay. What does my being saved have to do with Jesus not receiving the testimony of man? When he says receive the testimony, what he's saying basically is who I am and what I'm doing is not relevant because of the opinions of people. I don't gain relevance because people are supportive of me, or that, you know, it's not the opinions of people that are pushing my cause down the road by any stretch of the imagination. And that's really important because your salvation is not anchored on earth. Your salvation, what Jesus did and who he is to you, is not based on human uh, agreement in, in any sense, no more than what you and I believe about what's right and wrong as followers of Jesus is not based on human convention. Now, if you go out and you go to the city hall or you talk to people, you argue in court, philosophically, the the rules that we have in our government exist because of human convention. bunch of people got together and decided this is wrong and this is right. And they voted on it. And you notice how it's changing. They keep moving that line right along there, you know, Things that are right today, 20, 30 years ago, they put you in jail for those things. I mean, there was a brief period of time where it was a sickness, but now it's just fine, go for it, all day long, you know, that's the right thing to do. Whoa, kind of scary. Your salvation, your perspective of what is right and what is wrong is not dependent upon human convention. It's anchored in heaven. Jesus says... I do not receive testimony from him. Not even John the Baptist. And you know, this is as close to saying something not nice about John the Baptist as Jesus will get. He has only wonderful things to say about John the Baptist throughout the Gospels. And anywhere in, in the New Testament, you will never find a, a cross word said. Uh, in spite of the fact that you could be persuaded that John failed in bearing witness of Jesus as he sent people to Jesus, asking whether he was the one or whether he should look for another. Jesus says, He is a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Speaking of the people, not the religious leaders. Jesus doesn't see anything about John as being a failure. He sees him as amazing testimony. And even if you go and and look and see where where John sends people to Jesus to ask him, hey, are you the one or do we look for another? As soon as they leave, Jesus says amazing and wonderful things about John the Baptist right then. The testimony of the works, verses 36 and 37. But I have greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And that the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. The works of Jesus have a greater witness than John. John did no miracle. Scripture tells us straight out. The only only miraculous thing that John did was speak truth to authority. And he sure did that. He, He told the truth. He stood up and bore witness of God's truth. By the power of God's spirit. But no miraculous deed did John, did John do. The works that Jesus has are greater. And notice the works that he has given me to finish there in verse 36. Focus. Focus defines the line life of Jesus Christ. In everything that he does. Jesus has his eyes set on the goal. He knows where he's going. The works that he has sent me to finish. The very works that I do. Bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And notice the emphasis of the beginning of 37, please. And the Father himself, I mean, he's just jumping on it with both feet. Not just the Father, the Father himself specifically sent me, who has testified of me. You've never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form just sort of an offhanded comment to let, let's be clear here, who's who and what's what, just so that you know that you don't know what you're talking about. There, there are a few things that amaze me as much in the Bible as listening to Jesus tell the truth to these people who are all dressed up and playing this game like they're deeply religious. Because they've got everybody fooled. They've got everybody in Jerusalem buffaloed. They're making money off the people hand over fist. They're playing this game. All their disciples follow them around all day. They stop at the street corners and pray loudly. They take the money from widows and their parents, their own parents. You know, they fleece them and don't protect them, don't provide for them through Corban and so many other religious things. And these people are total mercenaries. And yet Jesus stands there and says, you know, you never heard his voice or have seen his form at any time. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. You don't know who God is. You don't have a clue who God is. Amazing. The Testimony of, of the Father qualified for Christ as the spirit, scriptural witness according to the law. And he just you know, throws that in. That they, you haven't seen his form or heard his voice. Isaiah 61 verse 1. This, the words of Jesus in the uh, synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And although God may have spoken audibly from heaven in several occasions in the scripture, the religious practice of these men is largely the result of their imagination, uh, baited by the forces of darkness. Do-it-yourself theology is a poor substitute for truth. God bless the Jewish people, support Israel, but Judaism in this world has been practiced at the behest of a bunch of 2nd century rabbis and other learned men for the last 2,000 years. And it has so badly jumped the tracks that unfortunately there's almost no resemblance whatsoever to... To real Judaism, to biblical Judaism. You know, I've been in reformed synagogues before that the carpeting in the main meeting area, right where near the rabbi speaks, is the Hebrew Maseroth, which is the signs of the zodiac laid out on the floor for people to follow. You know, it's it's kind of terrifying, unfortunately. The testimony of the scripture from verses 38 through 40. Jesus adds the truth to condemn these confused leaders. In verse 38, "...you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of Me, but you're not willing to come to Me that you may have life." You know, as we pick up the words of Jesus here in 39, 38 and 39, he's in the middle of this whole dust-up with the religious leaders, with some of the people representing the leadership, maybe not all of them, identified as the Jews. Originally, the term Jew would refer to someone from the tribe of Judah. The word Judah means praise, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, and which would include Jesus. He's from the tribe of Judah. He is a Jew. In the Gospels, depending upon the context you're looking at, the term is used broadly either to refer to men in some official capacity, especially in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. In, in, they may not have actually been from the tribe of Judah, but they're called Jews. They live in Jerusalem, which is technically not really in Judah. It's in the tribe of Benjamin's geographic area, but it's right on the border there, so it's pretty close. But, but these people are called the Jews. People that are in in this religious capacity, part of the community of Jerusalem. So these guys have some spot in the pecking order of the Temple Mount, the chain of command. Their gripe with Jesus, as we said, started back early in chapter 5 when he healed the the man, the lame man, for 38 years. And they saw that as undeniable evidence that he was not from God. That combined with the fact that he insisted on healing on Saturday, uh, but important this is not contradicting the law of moses in any way folks jesus doesn't even bend the law of moses much less break it he does bend and break the ideas of commentators and other rabbis like uh, rabbi Shammai, rabbi Hillel, that felt that they're you know some of the 713 laws that they concocted to go with the ten commandments but he very clearly and repeatedly saying you know the elders And the chief priest's spin on the scripture and oral tradition is for the birds. And that's Jesus' perspective from beginning to end. He will eventually illustrate this point by forcing the chief priest to choose between God and their interpretation of the law when they send him to his death. The main thing here is that he healed the guy, crippled for 38 years, told him to take his bed. But as they got into the dispute, another thing became a problem. And this was bigger mostly by implication, Jesus making himself equal to God, which of course is a real problem, making yourself equal to God, unless, of course, you are. Which that idea didn't really dawn upon their minds. They didn't say, wait a minute, maybe he isn't... No, uh, they couldn't go there. They didn't really consider the possibility. You get the impression that their thinking on the issue was like, well, you know, if... If you were God, would you come from Galilee? Ridiculous. Back in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. How does calling God your father make you equal with God? You see in the English language, this doesn't really work for us. We don't really see it. Um, Doesn't everybody call God their father? In the original, the Greek language of of the the gospel here, of John, I understand that this phrase that Jesus uses, something, again, the English doesn't have, when he says my father in Greek, it is a peculiar claim. He's basically saying, My father, not your father. I am the only son. You're not his child, essentially, in, in the simple statement, the way he puts it out. And they got that. Now, Jesus probably didn't say this in Greek, he probably said it in Aramaic, but it, he got the idea across. Because they understood the Jewish leaders are not being creative here. Jesus actually implies equality with the Father. And I really wish the Jehovah's Witnesses would pick up on this. It would be helpful to them in a whole lot of ways. But they seem to miss that part all the time for some reason. His explanation is that his words and his actions are directed by the Father. And if this is a problem, he's going to do more and a lot more. He says in in verse 20, he will show even greater works. In chapter 20, we'll show you greater works that you may marvel. That's not right. It's not in chapter 20 or verse 20. No wonder that in verse 39 here, he directs them to the scripture, to the very word of God, but reminds them that they themselves have confidence that that word of God is the source of eternal life. At least they claim to. When he says in 39, uh, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Jesus doesn't rely upon his own claims. He doesn't attempt to convince them on the basis of human logic or to rationalize or dismiss their complaints about him. He simply appeals to the word of God, to the power of the word of God. We are answerable, folks, to the word of God. If not in this world, certainly in the presence of the Lord. John 6.63, Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. When a person recognizes the presence of God in these words, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. What happens? You hear the word of God, you know it's the word of God. It works. It happens. And this is what Jesus wants so badly for these people that he's talking to. Notice, That he says, they think the scripture is the source of life. The word there, think, the Greek word, dokeo, which means to think or to suppose or to be of an opinion. You see, they don't know. They don't know that it is the word of God. It's really sort of an insult to people that have dedicated their lives to the word of God. You believe in the Bible. I think so. No, 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 no. You believe that it is the source of eternal life? I, I suppose, can you know? And if so, how can you know? A person can pray and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And if He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, like it says in First 1 John 1, nine. but until God reveals Himself to us from the Word of God, we cannot know that the things of the Kingdom of God, the things that no man can know, in and of his own ability. In John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. When people ask, how, how can you give them evidence? Well, you know, there's libraries full of information. You can show people. But until the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, they will not live. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. These are they which testify of me, he says. The scriptures are they that testify. They they are his legacy. This is his claim, the scripture. There's a problem with these men. And without waiting for their response, he proceeds to tell them what their problem is, what the obstruction is all about. He says in verse 40, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You are not willing. Isn't it the same thing in the life of every person that rejects the truth? It's not beyond belief. It's not a noble conviction or some deeply held principle. Just kind of prideful, self-centered aversion. Reluctance with license, you know. And, And what is the reason that we turn our back on this real life that we haven't even tasted? He wasn't really educated, this guy, Jesus. He didn't go to the right school. He wasn't from around here. He was from Galilee. He probably had a Galilean accent. The nerve of God gives somebody like that the ability to heal people. Look, look at the company he keeps. He doesn't even know any of the leaders. He's a Democrat. Oh, my gosh. You know He's homeless. He's not one of us. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. What reasons do you use to ignore God speaking to your heart because of your own petty prejudice? You know, we need to think about those things. These are not reasons, they're just convenient excuses to help people write off their accountability. John 1 11 He came to His own, His own did not receive Him. John 3.11, Most assuredly I say to you, when we speak what we know, we testify of what we've seen, and we do not receive our witness. You do not receive our, our witness. 3.32 of John, and what he has seen and heard and what he testifies, no one receives his testimony. John 12, 37 says, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. And again, all this answers the testimony of the scripture. Isaiah asks us, Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus doesn't really say why they are unwilling to come to him. Any of these excuses will do in a pinch, but the rest of the chapter seems to imply What we're really looking here at is they are unwilling to humble themselves before the Lord because of the opinions of men are so very important and prominent in their hearts. And all of the different kinds of testimony, our very favorite, is our own. Everybody likes their own ideas best. The testimony of men, verses 41 through 44. I do not receive honor from men But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? He does not receive honor from men. He does not receive it in the sense of willingly take it. It's surely there. It's not that it isn't given. The words or opinions of men have no relevance or contribution to the person of Jesus Christ in terms of testimony to prove or validate His authority in any possible way. Here in verse 41, in terms of honor... I do not receive testimony from men. Think about it for a minute. Would you receive an award from an immoral person, from murderers, child molesters, liars, people that take advantage of the poor and the disabled? Why would God want to receive honor from the likes of us? You know, when our our righteousness, not, not our bad deeds, but our righteousness is like filthy rags. Why would God want to receive an award from us? Notice how direct and to the point the language is in verse 34 and and verse 41, both of them. I do not receive. He's not thinking about it. He's not, give me a minute, give me a minute. No. He mentions John the Baptist earlier in the chapter, how the people, not the leaders, sought him out and received him for a time. The testimony of Nin is not to be trusted. Jesus doesn't receive honor from men. And if he did, would not the failure of men reflect upon him? If Jesus had rested his work upon the testimony of John, what should have happened? All the way back in John chapter 2, he does not receive the, the testimony of men. Before John was ever even in prison, when John sends to him in Luke 17, 19, the work of Jesus and his message and his person are inseparable. They can't be subject to human frailty. Lest God's work should be no greater than the work of men. Unreliable and uncertain. Not only does Jesus not receive honor from men. As we follow his example. We are not to receive honor from men. We're following the example of Jesus. We are not to receive honor from men. Nor build our lives upon human ideas or abilities or human reputations. 1 Thessalonians 2.6, the Apostle Paul says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as the Apostles of Christ. Who's Paul following? Jesus. Exact same idea. To receive the honor or testimony of men, and surely to seek after it, is to corrupt the work of God. Jesus rests the authenticity of his life and his work solely upon the testimony of the father in the and the word of god in answer to the scriptural guide in the works directed by the father fulfilling the prophetic agenda by the spirit of god confirmed in his word in the unfolding of the mystery of the ages from the very beginning of his work john 224 jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Here again, one reason he does not seek to receive the endorsement of the leaders in Jerusalem, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. The, and, and when he says, I know you, the, the Greek language implicates that he has come to know and still knows them. The statement based on facts and evidence. Think for a minute, folks. Think about this. Jesus heals a man who's been crippled for 38 years. That would be 1978. A guy who'd been crippled since 1978 in our world. Okay? These men see him going home and the only thing of significance to them is that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. They don't care that he's been healed. They don't seem to... There's no recognition to that idea. This has got to qualify as some kind of insanity. There's something wrong with these guys. One of the ways you can tell if a person loves God is by observing that that person loves people. Why? Why? Because God loves people. You say you love God. What's the verse? 1 John 4.20 Someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? You know, so many people feel like it's their ministry from God to go around and point out where everybody's wrong. How is the love of God revealed in that? Uh, Granted, there is a way to point people out that they're wrong and love them at the same time. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's got to do it. Love towards God is an amazing thing. Actively loving God is essentially the central purpose of human existence. It's why you're alive. And it is no wonder to me that people have hardened their hearts against Christ, feel constantly empty and meaningless in their lives. They missed it. They missed it all. You think these men were used to hearing stuff like this? I wonder. I kind of don't think so. I think they were used to having people get out of their way and bow. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Their eyes had to be really big. They had to be freaked out. The things Jesus says to people are wild and amazing in the extreme. I really believe it was the shock value of things that he said that kept them from killing him for such a long time. They couldn't believe he was actually saying this stuff. They walked away. Did, did he say what I thought he said? I think he did. Just flipped them out. Jesus is absolutely fearless. And I, would, I don't think it's true, but I would love to think that he kind of giggled a little every once. In a while. <laughs> <laughs> I know the disciples did stand back there behind him. Whoa! Whoa! If he said that! You know? But Jesus is all... He's serious. He's serious. This, there's no humor in this because he knows that the lives of these men are at stake. They're Listen to what I'm saying. Your life is at stake. Verse 43 here is... is offered as an indictment against those who, the so-called leaders. He says in 43, I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. First, Jesus makes the claim for his work in ministry. I've come in my Father's name. Basically, I am representing the Father. That's what I'm hearing. And that um, I've come on my Father's behalf at his direction, according to the Spirit and in power. Romans chapter one verse four said it, of Christ, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's power, bro. Let me tell you, coming in the role of an ambassador, the chosen servant of the Father to work His purpose among you. These are the claims He makes of Himself, and they cannot be refuted. They cannot be refuted, and yet you do not receive Me. He really, you know, He wants these these men and these women to see what's going on here. Do you really understand what you're doing? Do you really understand the seriousness of the decisions you're making? And you know we don't. We don't. From the very first day when God went to Adam and said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat it, you will surely die in a place where nothing died. So Adam had absolutely other than trusting God's word. He had no counterpoint to, what do you, the death, it sounds like a bad thing. What do you think it is? What goes on when you die? I have no idea. He had no idea. Today, we tell people, if you don't come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're going to go to hell forever. These people have never been to hell. They have no idea what the word means. They think of movies and people in red pajamas with pitchforks. They have, they have no idea idea, no concept whatsoever of what we're talking about, a place that I believe is eternally and entirely alone. For a person to be alone forever and in great pain with regret as well. The second half of the verse here is both a prophecy and an accusation against these men. It says, If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. What? What does he mean? You know, we feel, folks, so much more comfortable with a situation that makes sense to us. A political leader providing deliverance from worldly hardship, opposing our human enemies, serving our earthly needs the way that we think they should be served. This is why the idea of a God that is represented by every religion of the world together is so popular because it makes sense to us that uh, this is the way that We would do things, you know. It's what I believed before I was a Christian, that all the religions of the world were really just one philosophy that had become twisted in certain ways because of crazy zealots that overemphasized one thing over another. But there surely is some supernatural power, but it's just really this one thing. And sooner or later, you know, it'll become clear and everybody will understand. And when the Antichrist tells us so. (laughs) And that's just exactly how it's going to work. Think for a minute. This is, a, this is an idea that makes sense to us. It's a reasonable idea. It makes sense to the human mind. You know a little about this place where we live. You know a little bit about maybe nuclear physics, subatomic particles. You know a little bit about the billions of galaxies flying around out there in space, whirling around our universe. Do you think this place was really designed and manufactured by somebody who thinks the way that you think? I don't think so. Isaiah fifty-five, eight: My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, which is pretty substantially higher, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thought. God does not do things the way we would do things. Trust me. He goes so far as to tell us future events, to identify himself as the one who knows the future, and here in verse 43 is a reference to the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who will come in his own name and he will be gloriously received by the children of Israel to their own destruction. Want to find a place, safe, safe that's, want to find a place that's really safe on earth? Go to Israel and stay there until the day that they sign an agreement with the Antichrist because they will do it. They will do it. And it will probably have to do with the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And when they do, you better move. Because it's all over. Because the time of Jacob's trouble is at hand. And seven out of ten Jews are going to die. It's going to happen. It breaks my heart. I love Israel. But it's the truth. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He will come in his own name. True to form, the Lord warns us, like a very good parent, And there are consequences to this course and they are greater than you can understand. You need to trust my word. Pay attention to the flashing yellow lights. Go back, turn around. Here in the last part of this conversation, the Lord does two things that I really love. He asks questions. I love it when God asks questions because he already knows everything. There's nothing that he needs to know because it means that he's trying to get me to think about something. When he asks a question. So in the middle of this discussion. About who is really from God. And who is not really from God. Jesus asks them a question. How can you believe. Who receive honor from one another. And do not seek the honor that comes. From the only God. Let me paraphrase that for you okay. Is it possible for you to really be connected to God. If what people think of you. Is more important than what God thinks. Think about that. Think about that. Because I'm afraid that the answer is no. If what people think of you is more important to you than what God thinks of you, you are in a lot of trouble. And this speaks to the heart of our condition as human beings, folks. We have problems with this. We really do. There's a battle that goes on inside of each one of us between acceptance of man and the acceptance of God. We are all wired a little bit differently in this regard, but that said, it, it's not an insignificant issue to anyone. Something I believe we have to deal with every single day on a day-to-day basis so, so that we understand where we really are and where we need to be. Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five: says, so The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord will be safe. That's not to say that we have no concern for people. We, we love God. We're going to care for people. Acts twenty four sixteen says, This being so, the Apostle Paul speaking, I myself strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. The Holy Spirit gives us that balance, whether we want it or not. He provides direction for us. Think of all the years that you've spent worrying about what people think of you really making yourself a slave to the opinions of people. What great thing has it accomplished for you? What, what is that really wonderful thing that it brought to pass? Wonderful circle of friends that love you for who you really are, regardless of your failures. Social position that will never be taken away. Status in your circle of friends that is totally satisfying to you. Position, possessions, power, passion, probably not. Like so many other things, seeking the approval of people, no matter who they are, as something it's going to make you complete is a dead-end street. The ideas, the opinions of people about you are not going to get it. There is only one place that you will ever be complete, and that's in Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. If you've been through a lot of junk with people, then you know that it's true. The more you go through, the truer it becomes. If you want to be surrounded with people that love you for who you really are and provide a family that you need, whether you're related to them or not, go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And You already knew this. We need to do something about it. In addition to the fact that it utterly alienates us from God, in seeking the approval of people, we are making ourselves the friend of this world, seeking the honor of men, and it's empty. Uh, Actress, Elizabeth Shue, I read in a a parade magazine interview with her, she said, the attention you get from show, show business is very, very shallow. It's the emptiest fuel for your soul. It can't, sustain you. Human recognition is temporary recognition. There is really no recognition in it at all. It seems to be real for the moment of time, but in eternity it might as well have never happened. Inscribe that on your Oscar. Might as well have never happened. Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to them all, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's a scary verse. It's interesting that these people that Jesus is reproving are referred to as the Jews here. In Romans 2.29, the Apostle Paul tells us at the end of Romans 2, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and of the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Real Jews are into God first. These people see themselves as real men of God, as the disciples of Moses. But are they really? The Lord has confronted their arrogance with a great courage, telling them the truth. And he ends, as He ends the conversation, as He does with all of us, He puts His words into a context that we cannot escape and finally in verse 45 through 47 the testimony of Christ do not think that i shall accuse you to the father there is one who accuses you moses in whom you trust for he if he you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words jesus wants to make it very clear that he's not their enemy Even today, real haters of the human family would like nothing better than for men and women all over the world to see Jesus as their enemy. I've been thinking about making a (laughs) t-shirt. I wanted to say, there's a very good chance that you may be confused about who Jesus Christ is thinking About it. In verse 45, don't think that I accuse you. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and whom you trust. Jesus doesn't have to accuse us. We're our own worst enemies. The mention of Moses, Moses' name comes out of Jesus' mouth. Every one of these guys went, These guys worship Moses. They worship Moses. It's like a knife in their heart. Moses, in whom you trust. Moses and the temple were the two greatest idols of first century Judaism. Whenever worship deviates, whenever worship deviates from the scripture, it degenerates into idolatry. There's no other place for it to go. It's the human way. It's what we do. Moses is the one who accuses you. This word, accused, that Jesus uses here, actually indicates public accusation. What did Moses say about Jesus? Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, God is telling Moses, from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Whew. Jesus cries to them, listen, Isaiah 55, three says, incline your ear, come to me hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the mercies of the beloved of David. Verse 46 is very similar to 39. It's the same message over again, except the mention of Moses. You can't miss the suggestion that they really, really don't believe Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. He wrote about me. Again, what's the testimony of the life of Jesus? It's the scripture. Moses is the the word of God. The father's instruction. Right back where we started. Believe the word of God. That's it. The rest of your life entirely upon the word of God. And you will trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then he leaves them with another question. If you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? And this is a thought, again, utterly repellent to these poor guys. Nonetheless, they are the words of simple truth. Of course, they they believe Moses, they think. Of of course, they reject Jesus. 1 John 4.14 says, And we have seen and testify The Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. You cannot have the Father without the Son, no more than you can have Moses without Jesus. The word how in this verse is interesting because like in English, it portrays two different issues. Okay, How will you believe my words? As in, is it even possible for you to believe my words? And how will you believe my words? As in, in what way will you believe my words? it is worse to reject the words of Jesus? Or is it worse to accept them as something other than the true Word of God? Both are actually rejecting His words. Just one's a little more creative than the other. Any person relying upon human ability to discern substance of inspiration, how the Bible has become the Word of God? The Bible hasn't become the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Or to find an intellectual basis from which to understand the working of God in the Scripture is, I think, barking up the wrong tree. Romans 11.33 says, The depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Romans 1.17, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 1 John 2.24 Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. John twenty thirty one. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Galatians 1, 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. Who is Jesus to you? Son of God with power to save. How should we come to understand that? By believing the word of God. What should we do about it? Rest our lives entirely upon God's truth. What's the testimony of your life today, folks? Is it the opinions of people? Or can we say of you, this is that which is written by the prophets? Why not? Why shouldn't we say that? Do you ever wonder what God thinks of us? It may seem a little confusing sometimes. But if you, uh, you read the back of the book, you'll see he gets it all sorted out. <laughs> Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today, Lord, for the witness of your word and, Father, the power of Christ, the amazingness of what he does. We're so grateful for the witness of Jesus. And, Father, for your grace upon our lives Lord, just to bring us into that fellowship with you and to speak to us, to provide direction and understanding. And Lord, we need your help every day. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to be your servants. And Father, help us not to be moved by the opinions of people, but Lord, to follow you and to hear your voice. Lord, we want to receive encouragement, instruction, direction from you. We love you. Bless us as your children today. We thank you and we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If uh, you need prayer for anything, I would love to pray for you. If you don't know the Lord, come on up and talk to me. We'll see if we can't get this sorted out.